Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andrei Karankov, a PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing a fellow Stanford PhD student, Peter Henderson. He's a joint JD-PhD student at Stanford, advised by Dan Jurafsky. He is also an Open Philanthropy AI Fellow and a Graduate Student Fellow at the Regulation, Evaluation, and Governance Lab. His research focuses on creating robust decision-making systems with three main goals, those being to use AI to make governments more efficient and fair, to ensure that AI isn't deployed in ways that can harm people, and to create new machine learning methods for applications that are beneficial to society. So that's that's quite a bit, and I'm excited to hear about this. Uh, and thank you, Peter, for joining us for this uh, episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Great. So uh, yeah, starting out, uh, our usual question, which I always find interesting, is going back before all of these uh, specific papers. How did you first get into AI and research, and uh, you know, get on the path to do your PhD? Yeah, so uh, I guess I was interested in AI since I was pretty young. Uh, you know, growing up, like a lot of people, I was really into sci-fi. I pretty much soaked up every sci-fi sci-fi thing I could get my hands on. Um, I was really into Star Wars and things like that. And so, you know, when you read and or watch these movies, uh, you often start to think about like, oh, I want to see three PO or I want R two D two and uh, how can I make that a reality? Mm -hmm. And so kind of when I was younger, I started like modding games. Uh, I think the first one I modded was uh, Unreal Tournament uh, because they had like, uh, you know, all those tools for that. Um, Though I'm pretty sure I I made my, uh, the AI agents worse because I was, you know, (laughs) young and really bad at programming. So Mm -hmm. that's fine. So Um, do you know when that was like how old you were roughly? Oh gosh. Um, it must have been like seventh grade or right, maybe so some, some, somewhere around there, maybe like early high school. Yeah. Maybe not like super young, but you know, mm-hmm. younger than I am now. Um, yeah. And so kind of from there, I, um, I also, my mom uh, had to do her master's in night school. So often I'd have to kind of like tag along um, to the UMass Boston campus and uh she would like leave her textbooks in the car and this was pre-iphone so there's like nothing better to do so i would kind of read some of the psycholinguistics textbooks um i didn't really understand any of it you know because it was i was much younger uh and um but it kind of got me thinking about you know uh you know why do people act the way they do and and how like what does that mean for if we want to build an agent like c3po which seems very human how would we uh, you know, take the learnings from areas like psycholinguistics uh, and bring them into the AI world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then I uh, went to McGill for undergrad, and there I had the opportunity to take a bunch of AI classes kind of a little bit before AI got really big, you know, pre-2014. Um, and so the classes were really small. There weren't that many people interested, which was kind of interesting now that Uh, All the classes are, you know, hundreds of people uh, in basic ML. Um, 
And so uh, I got to work with things like recursive neural networks, which you don't hear of anymore <laughs> um, now that transformers have taken over. So this uh, is like not recurrent or? No, this, this is time? recursive. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, not common. Yeah, it's uh, Socher's, uh, Richard Socher's work, I think, from mm-hmm. his uh, PhD thesis, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is like, you know, way before Transformers. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, you know, after taking a few classes, I, I got really hooked. And I'm pretty sure I took like every AI related course at McGill because I was, I mean, there was only like three, but, you know, I took all three. Right. Um, and then, yeah, so uh, after that, I kind of decided to work at AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services for a bit on sort of like enterprise hybrid cloud storage solutions. But, you know, at night after work, I'd basically go home and kind of tinker with ML models. And so I really decided at that point, like, you know, if I'm doing this in my spare time, I should try to find a way to do it full time. So, yeah, after that, I went back to do my master's with um, Dave Meager and Joel Pinot at McGill and uh, got really into RL and various uh, kind of ML research and kind of never, never looked back. Cool. Yeah. And then uh, did you do any research in undergrad or did you just get into it during master's and and then find it that you enjoyed it? Yeah. So I tried to do research in undergrad. Um, So like like I mentioned, when we were looking at the recursive neural networks, I tried to do something that was like multilingual um, training of these recursive neural networks, because at the time there wasn't that much multilingual work. Um, And but it kind of never really panned out, like things didn't really work. And I, you know, kind of ended up putting those on the back burner. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess before my master's, I never like published any research or anything like that. Um, I think the master's is where I really uh, started to get into, you know, actually publishing research instead of sort of hobby, hobby mm-hmm. uh, models and things like that. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That's a good path to go to, you know, get a bit of experience before a PhD, make sure research is a good fit and then, uh, just keep going. And yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I recommend people try to get some industry experience before going into the PhD, because, uh, I think one thing I learned at Amazon, you know, was that, um, building really reliable products is kind of hard and, you have to really think through the engineering design. You have to write clean code that can be reused. You have to test it really thoroughly. Um, and these are some things that kind of get lost in the, um, you know, process of research. You know, you want to publish a paper really fast. So maybe you don't think about the engineering design so well. And then, you know, things build on top of other things and there's ends up being a lot of tech debt. So I think one thing that, you know, working in industry really helps with this understanding these sorts of like software engineering design practices that can actually help quite a bit uh, in making good research code. Yeah, as long as you don't get too used to the paycheck, because that's something you got to give up. (laughs) That's that's definitely true. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, uh, talking about this reliability uh, of code and, and things like that, actually, that segues a little bit to what you did during your master's. Uh, so your thesis uh, ended up being repro- ended up being reproducibility and reusability in deep RL. Uh, which was uh, kind of tackling a lot of these issues in RL where people published code and did experiments without kind of being careful about the design, not a, not necessarily the software design, but like the experimental design, and that was bad. So could you just give our listeners kind of an overview of that and what it was all about? Yeah, so um, basically what we did is... So This project started off when we were looking into a totally different reinforcement learning project. And um, actually, it was talking to Dave Meager, and and we were saying, like, wouldn't it be cool if we could get RL agents to learn from YouTube videos? And we were thinking, like, what is the path from here where we have nothing to that? Um, And so we started trying to mess around with sort of the RL algorithms that were kind of known to work at the time. And we realized that uh, we were getting problems where we would run it once and it would work. We'd run it a second time, same hyperparameters, same code, and it just doesn't work. And we were trying to figure out what's going on. And we realized like the random seed is what's causing the failure. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we were talking to some other uh, students at McGill at the time who ended up being co-authors on this paper. uh, And... Basically, we were kind of frustrated that we weren't getting these things to work consistently. Um, And we realized that, you know, if you actually cluster random seeds, you can get totally different results for the same algorithm. So we have this graph in in the paper uh, called Deep uh, Deep Reinforcement Learning That Matters. And it shows the same algorithm, same hyperparameters, same code. And you can group it in such a way that you get significantly different results um, using the same system, which means that, you know, now that looking back, what it really means is that you're just underpowered. Mm -hmm. You don't have enough statistical power to make inferences about which model actually performs better than the other. And then, yeah, pre, this was around 2017, I think, 2018. And before that, DeepRL was, you know, super huge already, but I don't think it was common to report results from multiple seeds or anything like that yeah at the time so we we saw things like report your best results like so you'd see something in a paper that would be like this is the top seed of 500 seeds or this is you know uh, 500,000 runs averaged together with no confidence intervals or you know this is uh, just one run. We have no idea how this run was chosen, uh, <laughs> but you know this line is bigger, better than the other line, so it must be better. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So our goal was kind of to make sure that people report, you know, more than one run, report sort of confidence intervals, um, maybe do statistical um, analysis and significance testing. Though uh, there was a recent paper that came out a few weeks ago that shows that, you know, it's still a problem. People still aren't running enough uh, seeds and things like that um, and have some really interesting and good suggestions on good statistical practices that kind of build up uh, on the suggestions that we made in 2017. So oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah, I think the paper is called um, 
deep reinforcement learning at the edge of the statistical precipice. Oh. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I remember seeing this paper at some point and kind of being excited because I think it was kind of a known thing that when you, like, when you start out with DeepRL and just throw an algorithm at a problem, even like with state of art, you would really not know what would happen. And sometimes even like simple problems that were solved, you might have a lot of issues randomly. So it was always kind of a crapshoot. And uh, this was certainly part of a reason is, uh, you know, uh, that we just didn't have much of an understanding of their robustness. Uh, and so, yeah, you look at the paper's results and if they look nice, you would have to really take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> That's still true, but maybe to a lesser extent. Yeah, I think, um, and it's really a problem, you know, beyond the sort of like wasting grad students time trying to replicate something that's just really hard to replicate um one thing so you know part of my work now is also on the law side of things as well and part of what we see in policy is that um a lot of policymakers will look at a, a really hyped up result and think how can i apply this to my context and often that context is something maybe a little bit dangerous, maybe a little bit um, sensitive. It could be, a, you know, DOD um, or D Department of Defense, the military, things like that. And if, if the algorithm fails randomly, um, that's not something that should be deployed in that sensitive context. So, um, you know, reproducibility really, really matters beyond just like the research community. Now the AI is going into production in, in various settings. Mm -hmm. And it's it's interesting, <clears throat> and it's interesting. I think uh, since this paper, partially because of it and partially for other reasons, uh, it has become the norm to expect these sorts of DeepRL papers to at least run experiments with multiple seeds, to report uh, not just a single run. So on a graph, instead of just reporting like a line graph, you would have kind of the upper and lower um, intervals, you would have sort of a region, right, that you get from multiple runs. So you know kind of the upper end and the lower end. And now if you, you know, submit a paper, reviewers kind of expect it and punish you for it, which again, I think was not the case uh, before around that year. Yeah, definitely. Um, which is, I think, a good thing. Um, you know, there's also other trade-offs, right? Like, we need to better understand how many runs are enough, and we probably don't want to demand too many runs. Like, if it's not necessary to run something a million times, you shouldn't run it a million times, right? Um, because that wastes compute, it wastes time, it wastes resources. Um, and there's an equity kind of trade-off as well, right? Like... Um, someone with many compute resources might not be able to run things a million times. Um, and so there are real trade-offs, but I think, so I think the community is now navigating trading off um, computational resources against getting these robust results that hold up. Mm -hmm, for sure. And yeah, there's been also a rise, I think, at more papers 
being more purely empirical where you just run a large number of experiments and very very architecture very hyperparameters very uh, uh, change various aspects just to see kind of what what happens with these different algorithms to understand better how they behave where they work where they don't and that's been uh, also kind of a nice pattern because um, yeah, you, you don't always need to come up with a newer architecture or a new solution. It's nice that people are trying to sort of take a step back and, and uh, understand what we have and, you know, what we should be doing instead of just moving forward. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I really appreciate whenever I see a sort of analysis paper versus a soda paper um, because I think getting a deeper understanding getting a deeper understanding of where algorithms work well and where they don't, it's really essential for when we want to deploy them, uh, you know, in the real world. And, um, you know, it wasn't always that, that like we were able to publish this sort of work analysis work. Mm -hmm. I remember when we submitted the deep RL that matters paper, we were like convinced it's going to get rejected, um, from the conference. Cause we were like, Nobody wants to hear this and nobody wants a sort of analysis paper. Um, and so we were kind of ready for it to like go on, on archive without any publication venue. But uh, it got in and, and people really appreciated it. And now we have a lot more of that kind of work. And I really uh, I think that's really great for the community. Yeah, for sure. I think sometimes there is a problem where if you submit a paper that's different from what is usually done, you know, a, a slightly more out there, a strange paper, which it certainly is. It's kind of both analyzing things and suggesting best practices. There is, um, you know, a risk that the reviewers won't get it and you'll be rejected just because it's it looks different and maybe you don't see the value. So it's good to hear that in the end it was, uh, it was accepted and appreciated. Yeah, definitely. I think we still have a ways to go to making sure that um, people don't feel we have a ways to go before we um, get to a point where people don't have to worry about the sort of analysis paper getting rejected. But um, I think we're getting there and there's a lot more venues now. Um, you know, there's the ML retrospectives workshops. There's um the I can't believe it didn't work uh, <laughs> w uh, workshop or I'm not sure I remember the name correctly, but something along those lines. And so there's a lot more venues for, you know, airing out things that um, are useful kind of engineering. Um, uh, it, it's useful engineering knowledge that should be spread in the community. Um, and it's really important because, you know, a small RL trick uh, or a small trick in the RL code could mean the difference between it working or not working. Mm -hmm. Right. And making sure that that knowledge is distributed uh, is kind of vital so that people don't waste time trying to uh, recreate something that has already been figured out. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just like not widely publicized. Yeah, I agree. I think there's been definitely more focus on it. Uh, I learned recently that there's now uh, benchmarks and evaluation track at, at NeurIPS, the biggest AI conference, and, and that's quite cool as well. So this sort of work would, would fit in there quite well and you know, won't have any issues getting accepted. Uh, yeah, I was really... <laughs> 
Yeah, I was really <laughs> excited when I saw that they uh, created that track. Um, because there's also, I think, a need for, for good benchmarks in varied domains that are maybe more representative of um, real-world settings where things will be deployed. Mm-hmm. And speaking of kind of analysis research, best practices research, evaluation papers, we can uh, segue into your more recent work, although it's still a few years old now, uh, which is towards the systematic reporting of the energy and carbon footprints of machine learning. Uh, yeah, could you, of uh, a title, kind of suggest what it is, but uh, give us, again, kind of motivation and, and an overview of what you did there? Yeah, so um, this paper was motivated back in maybe 2018 was when we started actually working on it. So it was kind of a long time in the making. Um, uh, basically I had seen a presentation in the psychology department, uh, about whether they should continue doing conferences because conference travel, uh, is highly carbon intensive, right? Like airplanes are just big carbon emitters. And if you're, you know, making everyone travel to various venues across the globe every year because of research, you're kind of having a negative impact on the environment. And it got me thinking like, oh, hey, well, big models also use a lot of carbon from energy usage. And we also do conferences all the time. Um, so we started digging deeper into, you know, why this is happening. What is the problem? Is our a policy solution? Um, and as we were kind of digging into it, um, a couple of great papers came out that uh, basically showed how language models um, could have the potential for emitting large carbon emissions because, you know, when you train GPT-3 or when you train BERT, um, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of compute. Um, you're not always going to be running that in the cleanest energy grid. And so uh, after that paper came out, we thought about how can we get people to um, report what uh, energy and carbon they're actually using because what we wanted to do is we wanted to like actually publish a paper that was like uh, how much carbon does neurops emit in a <laughs> given year but we couldn't do that because people just didn't report anything like we went through and by hand tried to estimate how much carbon it would be but the reality of it was we didn't know what gpu they're using we don't know what energy grid they used uh, we don't know how long the experiments ran we basically knew nothing about the experiments in a lot of papers. Yeah, and uh, prior to that, and even today, that's something that isn't reported, as you said. People report kind of performance uh, information, and that's really mostly it. Uh, there's been a, a bit of work on sort of efficiency on, uh, you know, performance per kind of energy unit, but, uh, yeah, it was very rare. So it's not surprising you couldn't do that, uh, Europe's thing. Yeah, exactly. And then we were thinking about like, okay, um, how do we get people to report this metric? And we didn't really understand how we would measure it ourselves. And so we kind of embarked on this journey of building a tool where you could, you know, wrap your code in it 
and it would just do everything for you. You know, it'd figure out what energy grid you're using. It would get the carbon emissions for that energy grid. It'd get the energy from your GPU. And then it would just like print out a statement that you can like put in your LaTeX um, paper. And then that's it. Like try to minimize the effort. Um, and through that process, we found kind of a lot of difficulties in, in how do you measure things and um, how do you get people to adopt such a tool. Um, and what we found is it's still difficult, even if you make it easy. Um, I mean, it's also not that easy because everyone has different hardware and it's really hard to get uh, a tool that is kind of agnostic to any hardware setup working in a variety of conditions, especially when, you know, you're a couple of grad students who are not doing this full time. <laughs> and so, um, but nonetheless, we, we got something working in, in kind of like a big range of settings uh, and hopefully people use it. Um, but if not, we at least hope that people can use other estimation methods, because if you have the GPU, CPU, um, like kind of utilization and time of training, uh, you know, as well as your region and energy grid, you can kind of estimate you know, back of the envelope, how much carbon you're emitting and how much energy you're using. Uh, and I think just reporting those metrics basically helps from a policy perspective, understanding, you know, what are the next steps we need to take? Does it mean that, you know, for example, um, a framework like PyTorch could switch defaults to you know, FP16 or FP8 now, or the, there's like 8-bit Atom now, right? So is the is the lesson that we should just switch to sort of like minimally uh, energy-intensive systems by default so that if someone takes something off the shelf, they're already doing everything they can to mitigate um, their kind of like energy and carbon impacts. Yeah, and this is definitely tricky in research because the incentives aren't there still. Uh, so it's not common practice and reviewers aren't necessarily going to complain if you don't report you know, how many flops uh, your uh, model takes, much less the carbon usage in your experiments. So uh, I guess part of it will definitely be kind of... Uh, trying to push people to care first and to make it more of a focus for conference uh, standards and, and, you know, asking people at least for large models to include these kind of metrics, right? Yeah. Um, and in the paper, we kind of talk about various ways to encourage people to do this because, um, you know, this is a, a large range of literature in kind of environment uh, research where, you know, they try to push people to take, you know, the green option, be it, you know, appliances where they use kind of uh, energy star stickers to say like, which one is the energy efficient option or, you know, there's sort of like carbon taxes and things like that. There's a lot of research done into getting people to, to take the energy friendly option and also to report. And uh, I think the reality of it is unless it's a requirement or unless uh, it's incredibly easy or the default setting, it's really hard to get people to adopt these sorts of things. So, 
you know, I think one thing we can do is, is have conferences just kind of require, it doesn't have to be an accurate measurement, but just some sort of like, um, back of the envelope calculation, or at least reporting of all the components that would go into such a calculation, you know, your GPUs, your time of, uh, experiments and things like that. Yeah. And, uh, we've seen that, uh, sort of thing happen in the past few years, especially with, uh, broader impact statements, kind of calling out potential issues if it were to be adopted in another context, which, uh, of, of course for policy makes sense. And so there is a real chance that, uh, you know, the conferences will expand on that and say, well, a broader impact is obviously your energy usage and carbon footprint. So, you know, you should, you should include it at least uh, as a rough metric, which would be cool. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the other side of this that we didn't really talk about, but, uh, I guess we talk about in the paper a little bit is the industry side of things. Right. Um, because, that's where models are really being deployed at scale. And I think the good news is that um, in industry, there are now kind of efforts to both report better and to mitigate impacts. Um, so I think Google Cloud now marks um, the energy or they mark the data centers that have the lowest carbon intensities. Um, so there's like a green leaf now next to those. Um, I think Hugging Face just announced that their auto NLP system reports the carbon intensity or the carbon usage for a given run, um, which is pretty cool. And so there actually is a lot of effort in industry to um, make this happen and mm -hmm. kind of provide these sorts of defaults and labels and things like that that make it really easy for people to choose the green option. Mm, yeah, and it was interesting, speaking of that, I think a couple months ago, a while back, there was a paper from Google that did a deep dive on how you can make uh, your uh, compute clusters, your data centers more efficient with respect to AI, and they showed that with various design decisions, you can, you know, cut it down by a lot. And that was published publicly uh, and was quite extensive. So, uh, yeah, there's a hope, at least in industry, uh, once you start scaling up, that people will be aware of, you know, that it's being possible to really measure and, and know how to do things well. Yeah. And I think the good thing about industry is that the incentives kind of line up, right? Like, energy costs money. If you can make things more efficient and use less energy, it's probably, uh, better in the, for the company's interests anyways. Um, it's not always the case because, you know, it's not necessarily, um, that a clean energy grid is cheaper than a dirty energy grid, but, um, nonetheless, there are at least some incentives to drive down energy costs for data centers. Mm -hmm. So, um, Speaking of this paper, later on you had a really interesting uh, talk uh, or yeah, submission to this retrospectives track at NeurIPS, which you mentioned previously. Basically, the idea of this workshop is people can uh, kind of tell the story of how a paper happened, you know, go beyond the final result and, and kind of look back on and 
let people know more context and more uh, information. And so you had this talk, how blockers can turn into a paper, a retrospective on uh, this paper. Uh, so yeah, I'm curious, can you let us know how blockers can turn into a paper in this context? Yeah, so uh, I guess I kind of mentioned it a little bit in that uh, we started down this track in 2018. Um, and in the talk that you just mentioned, I kind of walk through the various iterations of this paper. And the first version of this paper was actually like fully done and ready to go uh, to AIES 2019, I think, uh, like done in November. And then we were like, but wouldn't it be nice if we actually did more, like provided a tool or um, or like like I said, measured the emissions from NeurIPS uh, or things like that? Like we didn't feel like it was really ready to go. And so we kind of held off and tried to do these extra things. And during that time, like I mentioned, a few really great papers came out um, that basically, you know, brought this to the attention of the community, like, hey, this is a real problem. Uh, and we were kind of blocked and we weren't really sure if we want to continue on with, with this work. Like, should we just drop it because someone already basically did this? Um, and then we kind of realized like, oh, wait, but we learned so much along the way. Like, there's valuable knowledge that we gathered together um, that we can still impart to the community. Um, and so then we, you know, put together this tool and iterated on the paper. And like during that time, some more papers came out and then we were like, okay, change direction again a little bit. Um, and basically I guess the lesson from the talk that I I'm trying to get across is that, um, you know, nothing is wasted effort. Like even if there's some paper that kind of scoops you, you learned a lot along the way. And to our earlier point of these sort of analysis papers, there's often a lot of engineering tricks or um, various things that you know that maybe someone else didn't know that you learned from either reproducing something or um, working towards something that maybe got scooped. And that in itself is valuable. And so I really kind of encourage people to write these sort of analysis papers or retrospectives because there might be some tidbit in there that's like really helpful to someone down the line and could save them months of work. And you know, that's valuable time and effort. Uh, so I feel like um, the lesson from that talk was kind of like, hey, we got blocked a few times, but we managed to like create something that at least we hope is still useful um, mm -hmm. and impart some of that knowledge that we like gathered along the way. And uh, I think that's like a useful paradigm for people that might feel like, you know, they wasted effort because something later got scooped. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. In this talk, you have a slide that you build of kind of a flowchart <laughs> of the development of this paper and all of its iterations. So you have, uh, you know, kind of a big one of like, you know, you start in May 2018, then you start writing in October, then you find the problem. So you can't do it or you have a new idea iteration two then there's another problem and you just said in the end all these problems all thing all these uh, blockers all have like a common theme that it's hard to estimate things that these prior papers like green ai 
didn't touch on so much. And uh, it, it seems like that was the final focus. So you, you did kind of land on your main uh, contribution just by seeing what hasn't been tackled so much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We ran into quite a lot of problems in, in building out the tool. Um, and I think most people do when they're trying to go down a new path and that's valuable information. Like for example, uh, we learned that Docker at the time, and I, I don't know if they've actually fixed this bug, but Docker at the time does not expose energy counters, uh, which are required to do estimation. And so you have to like find a workaround or like, uh, when you measure, um, energy usage on CPU, for Slurm machines, uh, you'll actually get all the energy from the whole machine, even if there are other jobs uh, allocated to it. So if you don't kind of assign credits based on how much process you're actually using, you're going to estimate like everybody's jobs on that machine by accident. Mm -hmm. And that's something we learned the hard way because we were like, again, I guess going back to the deep all that matters work, we ran the energy like metrics several times and we'd get like wildly different results. <laughs> you know, one time it would be like super energy efficient and the next time it's absolutely not. And we're trying to figure out what's going on. And it turns out like, Oh, it's because someone was running a job on the same machine at the same time. And so we needed to like change the tool so that it, you know, accounts for that and, uh, and gives stable results. And, and we did that. And like all of those like things that ended up being kind of roadblocks actually turned into valuable lessons and mm -hmm. more reliable kind of tools. Yeah. And, uh, as you said, I think this workshop on retrospectives, which has been running a few years now is, is very interesting because it exposes the process by which you get to a final product, which usually you don't see at all, right? You only see the final result. And this is pretty standard where in development, you usually hit at least one or two kind of blocks and you need to pivot and you need to like your final insight usually is comes at the cost of things not working or you, you kind of notice something doesn't work and you're like, well, why doesn't this work or how do I do this? And then maybe that branches off and that becomes your final thing. And it's kind of not the same thing you thought initially. And uh, especially for junior researchers or people starting out, uh, it's valuable to be aware that this is kind of how things work and what you might expect. Because uh, that's a lot of why research is, is stressful is you might often kind of uh, find yourself in a place where you don't know what to do next, but you just have to keep moving. Yeah. Um, but that's the beauty of these sorts of analyses papers, right? Is that that in itself is an interesting paper. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, yeah, I encourage like junior researchers not to get discouraged if they hit these sort of roadblocks because there's always sort of like, bits of gold, you know, hidden in there that are valuable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then more recently, much more recently, uh, you still had some work on this topic of uh, energy impacts and carbon footprints. Uh, and yeah, pretty recently we had uh, this paper come out of Stanford, which was about so-called uh, foundation models, right? Uh, 
basically really big models like GPT-3 that have a particular kind of capability to do a bunch of stuff because they're really big and train on lots of stuff. And you worked on a couple sections, one of them being the environmental impact section. Uh, so I'm curious, yeah, what what did you say in that section? What are the environmental impacts of these emerging and, and quite popular now types of models? Yeah, so uh, I think that section is both a little bit of a summary of our previous work and some new uh, kind of findings um, and ideas. So we focus on three points. First is mitigation, right? Like when you deploy or train one of these, you know, so-called foundation models, pre-trained models, whatever you want to call them, um, often there is this giant upfront training cost, right? You're training for months on a lot of data, and then you take that model and you adapt it to downstream tasks. And so it's actually in this setup, it's very easy to mitigate carbon impacts, not necessarily energy impacts, but carbon impacts of that initial process because there are very clean energy grids in the world, right? And if you're running in the cloud anyway, you kind of have the luxury uh, of moving things around, right? So like Quebec, for example, has a very low carbon intensity because it is mo mostly hydroelectricity. So running something in Quebec has very little impact uh, as opposed to, you know, running something on a power plant that is all fueled by coal, right? And so if you run your pre-training job in a very coal-heavy region, you're actually, you know, creating a lot of negative environmental impact that is doesn't have to happen, right? And so we kind of talk about and try to summarize various mitigation strategies, you know, beyond just creating energy-efficient models, you know, um, making sure that the flop counts are lower and things like that. But there's also these, like, very easy things you can do to mitigate, thing, uh, mitigate your negative impacts. Um, and then that brings us to the second point, which is, you know, if you can't mitigate, which is uh, when you have to deploy a model uh, and your latency requirements are really low, you don't really have a choice which energy grid you're running in. And so at that point, you have to both take the mitigation measure, measures, you know, model distillation, things to drive those energy costs down. But you also want to think about, like, is deploying this larger model really worth the negative impacts, right? Like, kind of the canonical thing I think about is, um, say I have a new translation model, but it's like 200 times bigger than my previous one, and it gets one blue score better, right? Is it worth it for me to deploy that 200x bigger model to get that one you know, percent blue score uh, improvement, or maybe I should just not deploy it at all, or maybe mm -hmm. I should find a different approach. Because, um, you know, it's all this sort of, like, I mean, this is a very utilitarian perspective on things. There's obviously, you know, other approaches you might want to take when thinking about this. But if the social benefit of the model doesn't outweigh the, you know, social cost or environmental cost, uh, it's probably not a great idea to just go ahead and deploy that model anyway. And I think we don't really think about that calculation as much when we think about um, 
model performance and model development cycles because we think about like 1% improvement. Great. It's a better model. Let's push it out. Right. And so I think that's what we're trying to drive home a little bit in that paper is um, thinking about what are these trade-offs and how do you uh, wrap your mind around these trade-offs. And then the last thing is, again, hitting home that we really need reporting because you can't really measure the trade-offs if nobody reports it and you have no idea what you're even like trying to trade off here, right? Like if you don't know your carbon emissions and you don't know about uh, your energy costs, you can't really conduct the sort of analysis. So driving home that, you know, reporting is really important so that you can actually make this informed decision-making about model deployments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, this is another thing where I think, you know, in research, there's not much incentive to report your uh, carbon footprint in the industry, you know, unless you're really, really mature. I think there's not much incentive to even think about carbon footprint versus just dollar cost, right? And those are probably correlate to some extent, uh, but you can obviously run on a cheaper grid that's powered by coal and have a higher carbon footprint versus run on a more expensive grid and have a lower carbon footprint. So that's another very tricky situation of how do you put the incentives there and make people care. It seems. Yeah. And I think another thing that we uh, talk about a little bit in this new new work is this sort of temptation to write off uh, carbon costs with carbon offsets. So like most cloud companies will now provide carbon offsets. So they'll like buy. Um, so these companies will buy a basically a package that says, you know, we emitted this much carbon. We're going to buy something that will offset that carbon. And that could be you know, a thousand trees that were planted, which is going to soak up all that carbon that was emitted. And then you say, you know, now I'm net neutral. Like I don't emit any carbon when I aggregate all the sort of offsets and emissions. And the problem is, and so we talked with a few environmental scientists and things like that. And we um, examined this and we found that what environmental scientists were saying is that the carbon offsets aren't always a good thing and they don't always actually offset the carbon emissions. Like it's better not to emit carbon in the first place than to try to buy something later that will offset it. Because for example, what, what they found is some of the carbon offsets, like if you buy, you know, a thousand trees that were planted somewhere, what happens is that these trees, uh, these, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what happens is these trees are uh, what's called like a monocrop and they're just one species of tree that's not necessarily even native to that region and it kind of destroys the biodiversity of the region and actually you know kills more forest in the process and emits more carbon and so it's not always so straightforward. So part of what we try to drive home is that, you know, carbon offsets are good, but we don't necessarily know how good. And so if you can avoid it in the first place, like you shouldn't just rely on the fact that uh, there are carbon offsets bought by these cloud compute companies. You should kind of think about it anyway. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, something that certainly is still not common enough, like, you know, in research with respect to many things. Um, and uh, kind of related to that, uh, so yeah, one side we've talked about is getting researchers to kind of think about carbon uh, footprints. And then another thing that's been a trend in um, uh, research is getting researchers to think about the potential negative impacts, right? And that's where these broader impact statements come in of like, once you publish it, once it gets out into society, uh, what happens? Um, and so now we can uh, move on to kind of your other focus, uh, which is maybe what you're doing more of now, which is at the intersection of law and uh, machine learning. So another section in this paper on foundation models was the legal implications of foundation models, which is something that I'm pretty sure you know, like no one aside from a few researchers at OpenAI and, and somewhere else uh, has thought about. So I'm curious if you can summarize that. Yeah, so we have, I guess, two sections in that, in that uh, white paper. One is focusing on legal applications. So if you deploy a foundation model uh, in a sort of law context, what does that look like? And is it really... Uh, are we really able to do it at this point? And I think the answer in a lot of cases is probably not. Like, we're probably not ready to deploy it uh, in a lot of really sensitive contexts without, you know, an immense amount of supervision. Uh, where I think we're getting close to is being able to deploy things as sort of like an assistive tool in like low stakes contexts. Um, and so one example we give in the application section is um, that, you know, if you ask GPT-3 to do legal reasoning, it just kind of fails, right? Like, um, you, so a common thing in um, law is you have a legal rule, which is, you know, um, basically just the law and how it applies to a given set of facts. You're given your set of facts and you have to analyze how does this law applied to this situation. Um, and so what we found is that if you even give GPT-3 the exact legal rule, you say, you know, a contract can't have an exorbitant penalty or something like that. Um, and then you say, well, this contract has a million dollar penalty if you don't return your Toyota Corolla rental in time. Uh, is this a valid contract? And GPT-3 will say yes, because a million dollars is not an exorbitant penalty. But really, that's not the right application of the rule, right? Like, we know that a million dollars for a Toyota Corolla uh, is, like, very exorbitant, right? So, it, these models are not, they're getting really good. Like, they sound like they're giving the right answer, but it's really not. Like, they're not conducting the proper uh, reasoning required for a lot of legal tasks, um, and then there's sort of like the other section of the paper, uh, where we talk about the legal ramifications of a deploying a model somewhere. And, you know, this is like a huge area of research, so it's really hard to, you know, summarize and there's various aspects, you know, one thing that's come up recently is for example, um, uh, models trained on code 
that's under a different license and you're just like, you know, grabbing everything under probably pretty restrictive licenses and then spitting it back out. Um, a lot of, and I think in the legal community, this is a very contested subject. Like we don't really know, uh, how a case like this would turn out. Right. And that's often the case with things that haven't been litigated, but we kind of know that there's, you know, this notion of free, uh, fair use. Um, so you can modify things like you can create a parody of so, uh, some content and that's fair use even if that content is copyrighted, so long as, you know, uh, you kind of are different enough and, you know, there's very specific legal requirements for that, but, um, without getting into it, basically, as long as it's different enough and, uh, you know, transformative. And so we talk a little bit about that and point to a lot of really interesting legal analyses in the community. Um, but I guess part of what we don't know is, is how this would actually turn out in a real, real legal case. Um, and there's also other kinds of aspects, right? There's um, in the U.S., there's like 14th Amendment law, right, where everyone has the right to equal protection under, under the law. So you can't have algorithms discriminate. But that's a very hard thing to prove in court, right, because the court isn't always really uh, receptive to statistical evidence of discrimination, right? Um, so there's a few famous cases, uh, one in the gerrymandering context where the court basically says, oh, this is like sociological gobbledygook. I don't really understand it. So <laughs> let's come up with something a, a bit more sound, right? And so... Um, there's all sorts of other considerations when you're deploying a model that it might be difficult to prove that a model is being discriminatory um, mm -hmm. or something like that. And that's not always the case, right? There's sorts of um, there's certain areas of law where it's much easier to prove, but there's a lot of impacts um, that are kind of hard to foresee and hard to govern right now when it comes to these model deployments. And so um, it's always good to like, even though there might not be a legal restriction on deploying a model, you know, you should think about the ethical implications of it. Right. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the, uh, the recent development of the, you know, GPD free for code, uh, which is called Codex and was actually, co-developed between OpenAI and GitHub. And GitHub is like where people store their code, basically. And they they did it, right? They just scraped all the publicly accessible code regardless of license and trained this huge model. And people found that, you know, in some cases it can spit out, uh, you know, uh, the same exact verbatim code from bits. And, you know, different licenses, uh, for instance, have requirements of like, this is an open source uh, set of code and you must also be open source if you use it. But now, you know, uh, if you use this tool and it spits out some of the same code, but you're closed source, you're doing it for a product, it's not clear at all what happens. And it's an interesting case where uh, OpenAI and GitHub are just going ahead 
it seems we've, they already did it and I think they want to release it and nobody knows. <laughs> and it's, it's a kind of a mystery of like, how do we treat this in terms of uh, licensing? Uh, so it's, it's a very pressing issues to think uh, about some of these things for sure. Yeah. And to be fair, I guess, um, from my understanding, from, uh, reading the experts on copyright and licensing, which that's not so much my area of law, but um, the consensus seems to be like, this is probably okay. It's probably transformative enough that it is okay. But again, we don't really know until it comes out, somebody sues somebody else, and then we get you know the judgment. Um, and this is sort of like the thing with Google v. Oracle, um, which you know, the Supreme Court ruled on that uh, in the U.S. I should say this is a very U.S. biased law perspective because, you know, law is different everywhere. But um, but basically the ruling was saying like, oh, yeah, Google can use the same API as Oracle, um, more or less. And uh, if it had gone a different way, we could see a very different world where like, Google can't use the Java API and has to like create something else um, because just simply imitating that API call would have been a copyright violation. And so, uh, you know, thankfully the ruling didn't go that way, but you know, you could very easily see some, some different ruling in this context where uh, say it spits out like a chunk of code that is ver a very large chunk and it is protected under this sort of open source license requirement. Uh, and then you don't open source that. Um, you could probably see that someone brings a lawsuit about that and there's a different ruling. Um, but I think the, the lesson is probably someone needs to review code output <laughs> by this model before you just dump it into your code base. Right. Yeah. There's been examples on Twitter, right. Where people showed, Oh, it, it does this or it strips my copyright, you know, or something like that. And, uh, yeah. Or, or it doesn't like replaces the copyright owner in the license. Like yeah. I saw an example where it just like, I think replaced, uh, who the copyright was assigned to in the license header instead mm -hmm. of and then everything else is the same so right right yeah. yeah so it'll be interesting to see how this goes and uh it's interesting also kind of broad, broadly beyond foundation models right one of the big issues that we've seen being talked about recently in machine learning is kind of the ethics of collecting large data sets so there's kind of been a history going back to kind of the beginnings of deep learning where you just scrape the web, right? So ImageNet, for instance, was just scraping for public images. Uh, and that's been the case. So uh, this um, this context was basically scraping the hub and GPT-3 was basically scraping the whole internet. And one interesting example, aside from these, uh, so it's already an issue of research in terms of kind of the quality of data and ignoring copyright. But there's another case of Clearview AI, which is a company that scraped the internet for billions of images of people and their names. And, you know, if you're in the U.S., there's a decent chance that you are in their database, like your face and name 
is in a database and if you're given, if they get an image of you, they can tell you, uh, can tell someone your name. Uh, and legally, uh, I'm not an expert or even know anything, but I'm pretty sure that's a tricky situation, right? Where no one gives consent and you just end up being there just because they scraped the web for any public images. Yeah, there's a, a quite a bit of litigation about that going through the courts right now. So we'll see how that pans out. But um, there's also other problems there, um, not just the fact that a private company is using it, but the fact that law enforcement is relying on this data that was scraped. Uh, you know, so there's sort of um, other questions about gov governments getting access to data that you thought was private and you thought they needed a search warrant for, but now like a private company has managed to gather it and therefore like repackage and resell it. Um, and then the law enforcement agency can, can get it through this like other mechanism. And so uh, another place where you see this problem come up as well is like location data and like training models off location data. Um, yeah. And, and that's, you know, I think, again, it's sort of like making its way through the courts. So we'll see what they say about um, whether Clearview violated certain laws and things like that, like um, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and uh, the Computer Fraud Abuse Act and things like that. Um, but um, it's, I think it's like a real concern of, you know, you think things are private and then a model is trained on it and suddenly uh, it's not so private anymore. And um, here at Stanford a couple years ago, we did a report on how federal agencies use AI. Um, and one thing you might not know is that like, for example, uh, ICE had models that were trained on social media, um, both to predict uh, whether you're, you know, an extremist basically from your posts and to predict whether you have a visa overstay based on kind of like what you talk about in your social media. So there is like, you know, crawling of your social media by these agencies sometimes. I think actually those use cases might've been blocked. I think the ACLU did sue to block it, but you know, models kind of pop up in various contexts nowadays. Um, going back to what we talked about earlier, you never know when a, a new actor might pop up and use your research for something you really didn't intend. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really important to think about, um, like, you know, those broader impact statements kind of, there's a reason to think about it because it does happen, right? Yeah, and a lot of people have been a little bit salty about that being a requirement or like, oh, how's my theory paper going to make any impact? Um, and in many cases, it may not be that relevant, you know, if you're just doing some theoretical whatever analysis of math models. But the point uh, in my mind is more so just to make it more of a standard for people to try to think about it. And, you know, in the cases where there are ramifications to be aware of it and call it out. Uh, we've seen cases, you know, uh, now famously with gender shades of like deployed models had major bias in terms of which races of people they could uh, recognize. And that's a thing where, you know, 
people in research in academia could be training their models on these uh, contexts and they display these biases. And if you don't mention that in your paper, uh, downstream users uh, will certainly not know about it, most likely. And then you could actually make a difference by knowing about it and, and making it clear that there's these issues. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, you know, clear example of that is like if you test your model for bias and it is biased and you flag that there's sort of like no excuse for the downstream actor then right like they can't say they didn't know about it if like right in the paper you say hey we tested it and there is like this problem um and so it is really important because you know downstream actors are now using things pretty pretty readily Mm -hmm. for sure uh, but getting back to not the ramifications so much as the applications, uh, aside from a giant foundation models paper, you have another recent work uh, called When Does Pre-Training Help? Assessing Self-Supervised Learning for Law and the Casehold Dataset. And that's related, I imagine, because these foundation models are self-supervised and do pre-training, right? So uh, was that sort of a direct extension uh, looking at sort of analyzing where you could apply uh, GPT-3 and stuff like that to law? Yeah. Um, so in the law school, we were kind of thinking about, you know, there's a lot of sort of monotonous work that goes into law. Like, you're writing a legal brief, it can take a very long time to really get that down. A lot of it is research, writing, polishing your writing, looking up the right citations to back your arguments, things like that. And so there is a lot of opportunity for, for models to actually like help with this sort of process where, you know, the human is reviewing it, but like it just makes the whole like research and writing process much easier. And we wanted to see if pre-training on case law would actually help with sorts of legal tasks. And what we found was first on the existing uh, legal benchmarks out there, it helped, but like not as much as we thought it would. You know, if you're using a much bigger model, you would think it would do better than like an LSTM that's pretty small and not pre-trained. Um, and what we found out basically is that when you when your pre-training data distribution is pretty far away from the downstream task, it really doesn't help as much. Like you might actually not need that, you know, pre-trained model. Um, and it's kind of makes sense, right? Like it's intuitive. Like if you pre-train on Wikipedia, it's probably not going to help you write a legal brief. Um, or, you know, if you pre-train on a legal brief, uh, it probably won't help you do basic QA about like celebrity facts, right? Right. Yeah. If, if like in my head, I'm pre-trained on the world, but that's not going to help me figure out some tricky law task, right? And that's what GPT-3 is to some extent is like just knowing a bunch of stuff about a bunch of things, but not being specialized, right? Exactly. And so what we did is we created like a new task that was much more in domain for pre-training on case data. Uh, and we did see, you know, that big boost from pre-training. And so it kind of hammers home this story of like, sometimes it's not always 
you don't always need to be a generalist. Sometimes you need to be a specialist when it comes to these models. Mm. I'm curious, how, how did you create this uh, different pre-training set of data? So basically, um, in law, there's a when you're writing um, a legal opinion or a, a legal brief, um, you'll often quote a case that has some legal concept in it, like a rule. And when you quote it, you need to kind of summarize what that legal rule was so the reader understands uh, what's going on. And this is called a holding statement. And so you'll be like, in this case, the court held that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, what we did is we scraped all of the case law data uh, from our holdout set from pre-training, so not seen. And then we turned this into basically a multiple choice task of, hey, given this context and given the citation, which holding statement do you think should go here? And often you can use like kind of, uh, you can do this task without actually knowing the case uh, precisely, though it definitely helps to know the case, <laughs> um, because when you're making a legal argument, right, often it's not like the same holding statement will appear from case to case, because often you're crafting the holding statement in such a way that you want to convince your reader that exactly what you're saying is true, right? You're making an argument. Like a lot of legal writing is argumentative. And so... Uh, there's a lot of contextual cues which will tell you which holding statement is appropriate. Uh, and we found that, you know, obviously pre-training on a lot of this data, uh, you know, and making sure that there's no information linkage and things like that, uh, uh, pre-training on this data helps you, helps a model pick up these cues that will tell you which holding statement is most applicable. Mm -hmm. Cool, yeah, and, and this is a case of, uh, it's interesting because it's it's another case of sort of an analysis paper where uh, first of all you just looked at well how how much does it help right and then as a result of finding out that thing you could then uh, present a better way of doing things so that's another case for doing these uh, empirical analysis papers because um, downstream you know, even if it's just purely analysis and you don't have some new contribution in there, uh, you can do follow-up work that takes those lessons and build on them in, in more informed ways rather than just like going in a whole new direction and, and building something else so that you don't analyze very much. Uh, so that's interesting to hear. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I guess there really is a trend to some of the work that I do in terms of uh, analysis. Mm -hmm. and kind of getting a deeper understanding of why things work the way they do. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm curious, uh, with respect to this paper, something I'm, I'm very much ignorant about is like how much of this sort of research exists. Obviously there's this case, casehold data set, so there are some benchmarks, but like, uh, yeah, how, how big of a subfield is it and, and how much do we know in this area? So I think it's really emerging. Um, in the past, there hasn't been much work in terms of building legal benchmarks. Um, I think there's been a couple of papers in the last few weeks that have come out with more benchmarks, which is pretty cool. Um, 
but it's definitely emerging. And I think the other aspect of this um, that doesn't get talked about is, you know, every country has different laws and the laws apply in different ways. So it's not like a model trained on U.S. law will necessarily generalize to Chinese law or vice versa, right? And so one thing we found was that um, kind of before our paper, there are fewer U.S. legal benchmarks on U.S. law. Uh, there's much more in the European law space, Chinese law. Um, and so part of our goal here, too, was to create like a U.S. law uh, version. Um, but there are very few sort of like NLP benchmarks for legal tasks. Um, but uh, our thesis is that it's actually a really good domain to test NLP models, right? Because often the task requires sort of really difficult reasoning, um, that we want these models to have an ability to, to do, but they currently can't do it. And so actually, um, we're in the process of trying to make some more of these tasks that uh, get at this legal reasoning aspect. And, and we're, you know, working hard on uh, expanding on this work. Um, and there's a lot of recent work that's coming out, but I think this is a emerging area of NLP. Uh, and it's also very useful, right? Because if you can automate some of these things, uh, it reduces the amount of time uh, that a lawyer has to spend doing it, reduces costs, uh, and it also you know, improves accuracy. One thing that we cite in the um, foundation models paper is that there's a lot of cases where uh, lawyers are kind of have a really high caseload and it's really hard to double check your work, you know, uh, a model might catch something that you didn't because you just don't have the capacity to do uh, mm -hmm. or don't have the resources to do all that research. Right. And so, uh, just like double checking work is, I think a really important task as well. Cool. Yeah. That's exciting to hear. And yeah, speaking of ways to aid people in law and sort of make tools powered by AI, uh, you mentioned when we started, uh, before you started that there's a new paper that just came out Actually, I missed when, when writing out my my thing, but I would be curious to hear it. So I know it's it's something about machine learning and and uh, discovery for courts and uh, yeah. But what is this all about? <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I should say we're we just posted the abstract and we're going to post the paper in a in a little while. But uh, it's been it's going to be forthcoming in the. Um, Harvard uh, Journal of Law and Technology, which is like a law review. Um, and basically what we did is we, we realized that uh, in discovery proceedings in the U.S., which I should say discovery is a process in civil litigation where basically both sides go to the other side and they're like, give me all the documents you have on subject X. Um, for example, um, a very famous case is Qualcomm v. Broadcom, where, uh, you know, one went to the other and said, give me all the emails you have related to this encoding standard. And one side didn't find the emails, and then there was like a whole uh, big problem. And so actually the courts, uh, or I shouldn't say the courts, parties in civil litigation have been using machine learning for actually quite a long time now uh, to find relevant documents. And so they use um, a mixture of active learning and kind of bag of words, SVMs, basically, um, 
to go through and like lawyers will mark documents as like, yes, produce this or don't produce this Mm -hmm. or this is confidential. And then they do basically an active learning process uh, from scratch every time to mark all the documents that they should give to the other party. Yeah. So this is sort of like it's document search. uh, There's quite a bit of work on it going back, you know, a couple of decades at least that I've seen. And I guess it's sort of like Googling where you just like have a query and then you discover relevant uh, things over here. You're, you have a more limited kind of set of options and you just need to pick the most relevant stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. The way that parties do this process is not the kind of typical way that you see in maybe document retrieval literature um, because this active learning process is maybe like a little bit different of a setup. But there's a concern because of the way the active learning process is set up. You know, all these things that, that are problematic uh, with ML models come up here, right? Like if a model is biased or if it sees an adversarial example or, you know, if it's uh, underspecified, there are ways that parties can kind of manipulate the process with like very little trace of evidence to steer the process away from documents that they don't want uncovered. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's like, you know, harsh penalties in place that, you know, will deter this behavior. And in most cases, that works really well and it's not really a concern. Like most parties actually want to produce the documents. Otherwise, they're going to get in trouble later. Um, but the fact that there are all of these, um, we call them vulnerabilities in this process might mean we want you know more standards in place because it's kind of like the wild wild west you you negotiate with the other party and you come to a process like i'm going to use this ml algorithm and they say no we don't want you to use that one we want you to use this one and we want you to validate it with a random sampling and then they negotiate negotiate and they come to the conclusion of exactly what algorithm they should use and you know what metrics they're going to provide and um because there are some of these vulnerabilities, that negotiation time is going to like, you know, grow larger and larger. If you say, you know, you use a pre-trained model and um, the other party says like, no, that pre-trained model is pre-trained on the wrong data. It's going to come up with the wrong documents. It's not robust enough, et cetera. Um, really, you want that negotiation time not to be so long because it's, you know, it's very expensive. You have to hire lawyers and they have to like argue for a long time and come to a conclusion. And so uh, coming to a set of standards that are like reliable and we we know that this sort of method kind of like works well enough and these metrics will provide you enough insight to see if there was any sort of problem in that uh, document retrieval process. Um, it's kind of important for the legal system, mm-hmm. uh, both to function efficiently and kind of fairly. Got it. So at, at a high level, this paper, I don't know if I missed it, is it a more of an overview of how people do things right now or analysis of how it ought to be done or maybe looking into developing something? It's a bit of both. Um, and like the next step we're looking into is developing something. It's targeted towards maybe the law community a bit more than the AI community because uh, I think there's some misunderstandings about how algorithms work. Uh, and there's like um, our job is to 
uh, dive a bit deeper into the technical side of things and explain what the implications of those technical details are for for the legal context. I'm curious, are there venues where it makes sense or that are kind of uh, a good fit for these sorts of papers that are like at the cross section of computer science and law? Because, uh, yeah, it's interesting, like, who do you get to review these papers? Like, there's computer scientists, they don't know law, there's lawyers, they don't know computer science. And, you know, who, who can actually evaluate and, and where can it just be published? Yeah, that's a hard question. Um, so there's kind of, there's uh, ICAIL, which is a conference focused on, like, legal tech. And often there will be both lawyers and computer science people publishing there. But that's more of, like, the technical side. Uh, when it's aimed at the law side a bit more with a lot of technical aspects to it, there's these sorts of like law review journals, uh, law reviews or journals uh, that are focused on tech. So um, often this will be like, you know, Harvard Journal of Law and Technology or, you know, I think, yeah, these sort of, sort of like the acronym is JOLT. You know, every law school will have their own mm-hmm. um publication like this but that's a very different publishing cycle than cs and there's like different standards and everything right yeah that's interesting uh yeah so i think uh that was cool you went on a little journey (laughs) across all your your different work uh and it's it's very cool to see someone who is you know touched on reproducibility, uh, you know, uh, climate and, and now law and, and touching on these emerging areas in many cases. Uh, and then, yeah, to close out, uh, let's kind of leave research and academia behind and uh, just chat about kind of what you're into outside of it. Like, uh, what do you occupy yourself with when you're not working? And maybe how did you stay sane during the pandemic aside from working? Yeah, so, so doing both degrees hasn't left me much time mm-hmm. to uh, do things outside of work. You know, I think I do the sort of standard um, things, you know, play video games like I mentioned at the top uh, and, uh, hike and work out and things like that. But, uh, I think a lot of my time has also been spent on the law side without any AI, um, doing various legal work. So, um, I co-lead the, uh, Stanford, uh, domestic violence pro bono project. So we provide legal services to, um, people going through very tough situations, and right now, I'm also working with the Three Strikes Project here at Stanford, where we represent people who have been incarcerated for a very long time um, over very minor crimes because of the Three Strikes Law in California. Mm-hmm. And so you'll have people who are in prison for like 45 to life for stealing a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that seems a bit unjust. So, uh, I tried to get involved with these efforts now that I have some legal training to help out with these various projects. Interesting. When did you kind of get the idea or decide to, you know, take on the JD and, and go into the legal direction? 
in addition to doing AI? Uh, is it, was it like a little bit into your PhD or, or how did that happen? Yeah, so I think I was in my second year of PhD and I think I mentioned uh, we were investigating how federal agencies use AI and uh, we were working with professors in the law school and I really thought in particular the kind of uses of AI in immigration contexts was really strikingly bad to me. Um, and at the time, there was also a lot more uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric and legal action going on um, that was kind of, you know, affecting a lot of people in the AI community. I mean, there's a lot of people here in the U.S. who were really affected by various immigration restrictions over the last few years. And uh, I was talking to the professors in the law school and they were like, well, you know, you can you can do both and, you know, use kind of knowledge from both sides to help the other side. And um, and I really felt that having the ability to help in a more hands on way with these sorts of efforts, you know, protecting civil liberties and um, and things like that was really important to me. And so I decided to just go for it. Um, but it's it's a it's a hard path because you have to figure out how to how to do both basically. Right. Yeah. I think one one uh, degree or PhD is plenty <laughs> to deal with, and then taking on something else is it's pretty tough. But you know, people do it. There's cases of you know MBA MBA in addition to things, and I think now is a good time for it. Now that you know, deep learning has matured to some extent. Um, a lot of it, like low hanging fruits and problems have been addressed. And now, uh, you know, they are being deployed, they are being used in many situations. So we need this more cross-disciplinary work and that exists in many contexts now, like, uh, obviously in the ethical AI subset also, you need uh, you know, combinations of backgrounds. So it's interesting to see also as a sort of emerging trend in addition to this empirical stuff, more cross-disciplinary work as well. Yeah, and I might be biased, but I, I really uh, think cross-disciplinary work is important because it also builds sort of bridges of communication between different communities. Um, in the, you know, between law and CS, there's sort of like a bridge where, you know, CS speaks one language and law speaks another language. And unless you have training in one or the other, it's kind of hard to know what the other is talking about, you know? Mm -hmm. And so having more sort of like translators almost between communities is, is kind of important. Um, you know, like, translating how a, a deep learning system works and why maybe it's not safe to deploy it in this high-risk context uh, is, is a very particular skill um, that maybe I don't even have, right. uh, even with the training. But, like, uh, you know, we need people that, that can communicate and translate between communities really well. And so I encourage everyone to try to, like, pick up some interdisciplinary coursework or um, research or just, like, you know, go across to a different department and hang out there for a while and chat with people uh, just to get some different perspectives on things. Yeah. I think if 
if you're early on in your career, now is a good time to not be afraid to do it because, uh, as you said, you know, it's emerging in many contexts. So there's law and AI, there's climate and AI, there's uh, medicine and AI where people are building some cross-disciplinary understanding and you're not going to be like the only one doing it. It might be a small group, but uh, it's it's now more common and, uh, you know, you won't have to forge this path by yourself. Yeah, it's... um. It's really nice that there's more doors open now for people who want to go down this path. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I hope you uh, <laughs> you know can handle and stay sane. Uh, but given your track record, I think it'll it'll work out. And with that we can go ahead and close out. Uh, super interesting conversation for me. I learned a lot. So uh, thanks, Peter, for taking the time for it. Yeah, it was great to chat. And then just our outro, this is the Gradient Podcast. You can check out our associated articles over thegradient.pub, where it's kind of a magazine. And you can go to our uh, Substack to subscribe. Uh, Also, please do the usual things of sharing the podcast, uh, reviewing it, uh, you know, raving about it, all that sort of thing. And tune in to future episodes.